0: Den Talks podcast is powered by denanywhere.com. You guys go to denanywhere.com now, no matter where you live in the world, and you can take our classes virtually and live. Go to denanywhere.com and sign up for just $29.99 a month. You get a limited access to our classes with over 150 a month to choose from plus most of them are archived so if you can't make the exact time you can catch them later we still also have our workshops and our certifications now all accessible to you no matter where you are go to (music) denanywhere.com Welcome to Den Talks Podcast. This is Tal, your host and the founder of Den Meditation. We are talking to Brooke Gayhan today, and I love this. She is the founder of The Heel Hive and is the most incredible teacher... Um, and student of B venom therapy. She's had such a battle with Lyme disease. So anyone who has any chronic illness or any autoimmune issues is going to love this episode. Anyone who knows anyone, and it's hard to relate or understand, we really do get into the psychology of it. Also perspective shifts that are needed, lifestyle shifts that are needed. But most importantly, we do talk about how bees can be used in this most incredible treatment and what bee venom therapy actually is, the science behind it, how you can use it, how it actually can help the bee community and how that all relates together. But again, anyone who has any issues with chronic illness or knows anyone, this is such an incredible episode for you because it goes beyond just the therapy and really deals with all the psychology and the emotional aspect of it as well. I hope you enjoy it. Like always, let us know, go to our Facebook group page, Dentalks podcast and drop us a line all right well Brooke I'm so So, excited to finally talk to you and thank you because how are things going there with the fires it's been it's been
2: stressful I'm not gonna lie um especially because the the fires have been going on for now so long and the smoke quality I mean the air quality has been going on so long that it's not one day of bad air it is like weeks that have now turned into months, yeah. and it's incredibly hard. I know, yeah, I was, but we'll get through it.
0: Yeah, I just, I was just back in LA for a few days, and I was like, oh my God, it's, I mean, LA tends to be gray anyway, but it was like grayer than usual for sure, and we're further down, so I can't imagine. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, I'm sorry. I know that's so hard. That's okay. Um, well, thank totally you. Totally okay. And then, so I, it's I, mean, my well, pleasure. Yeah, I'm so excited to talk to you because I feel like, especially for our audience, that you know we get a lot of people who come to the den. For lack of a better words, sometimes looking for miracles. You know, whether it's you know going through a tough time of their lives or shifts or just depression or unhappiness, people, you know, or deaths around them, people really looking for something that is going to change. And I always say, you know, it, it, nothing's a miracle. You actually have to work on it but they're looking for that final thing of like, nothing has worked for me. I've tried all these quick fixes. And a lot of people too, which is why I'm glad to have you here. A lot of times it's medical, like people dealing with autoimmune issues um, and they just can't figure out what the answer is. And you had this very long and insane battle with Lyme disease and then came to (laughs) therapy which has now become your life and you're helping people everywhere which is so beautiful and insane but i would love to talk to you about that because you too had your journey of looking and i don't want to say quick fixes because none of those were quick and none of them are cheap but that idea of like what will the answer be well it's interesting you say that people come to the den at many people at least
2: come to the den at a place where they tried it all and it hasn't worked and i would say that the same applies to the heel hive um you know, we take some of the most complex cases of chronic illness, um, and we are trying to transform their lives to something that um, not only heals their body, but also heals the trauma that they've gone through, which is always considerable after years of pain and misery. Um, So for me, I see it as, you know, I always say we're working with the highest fruit, not the low-hanging fruit, but the highest fruit, the most, you know, complex, you know, cases of people that many times can't get out of bed, are paralyzed by Lyme, have had their entire lives destroyed. I really, every day, it's, it's, it's such an amazing journey to watch hundreds of people just get through, you know, an isolated situation, which is chronic illness when it, regarding Lyme or tick-borne illness, because it just doesn't have that type of kind of community rallying, like, you know, cancer or, you know, other issues, COVID even. Um, So, yeah, it's dealing with, you know, the hardest, you know, hardiest, I would say, warriors and getting them through the hardest time of their life. Um, And bee venom for me was that. But it wasn't just bee venom, I always say. I started to heal hives because what I started seeing is that people were starting to sting themselves with bees and failing. Um, They would give up four, four months in, eight months in. They would try for two years and be like, I know this works for other people. Why isn't it working for me? And at that point, I had really perfected this really, you know, comprehensive system of lifestyle changes and diet and meditation and stress reduction, yoga and movement and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, sleep therapy and sleep hygiene. And I was watching these people on these Facebook groups just, you know, not have any direction and, you know, not be able to actually stay accountable to themselves and all the ways we need to heal because they they just didn't have the support. So I wanted to create something that gave our members that kind of prescriptive process and handholding that we all wish we could have in the medical system. So that's why I'm here today. Yeah, that's what I do.
0: So that's so interesting though. There's two questions I have off of that, but you're saying like, yeah, maybe you'd be lucky if you just did, you know, bee therapy on your own and that's it, but it really is a more comprehensive bodily and self-changes that you have to make. There's other stuff that goes with it for it to really have its peak performance.
2: Oh, absolutely. I say the people who just, you know, merely grab a bee and get started are those that just luckily didn't have mounting autoimmune, probably weren't living in high mold, um, did not have massive, probably legacy trauma and other traumas. I mean, no one no one becomes sick from being a, quote, perfect, you know, balanced human. We come to sickness many times with massive traumas, massive issues, massive even accountability and self-care issues. And once you get sick, it, it, it's really, really hard to learn those and transform yourself into a healthy being when you're in the midst of a complete panic over losing everything you know.
0: So when you say that, are you saying like, when you look back on your life, and so for instance, like with the tick, and like when you got bit, are you saying if you had certain balance in your life before, maybe you wouldn't have gotten as sick?
2: No, no. Like there, there's no doubt I would have gotten as sick. I was bit by a tick and then bit again, um, that then had multiple co-infections. Um, No, there was nothing I could do mentally um, at that moment, but I did go into it having a lot of trauma, a lot of self-care accountability issues. Um, You know, I was a hard-charging, you know, New Yorker. I worked hard. I party hard. I didn't know anything between, Um, you know, and I thought that showing up for Bikram Yoga or once in a while going on, like, you know, a retreat would see all the wellness I needed and drinking green juice every morning. Um, and that clearly was not the case when I got sick, I had to relearn what the daily, what seems like drudgery at first, but then becomes, you know, a complete addiction, the daily quotidian, you know, work on yourself and having to always, you know, get back on the horse and make sure that you stay accountable and stay healthy. It's not an easy thing to relearn.
0: Yeah, let's talk about, and then before we get into the beat venom stuff, which is so fascinating, let's talk about what is that for you, the daily quotidian of self-care? Um, I would say on a scale
2: of one to ten, ten being the best, one being the worst, um, i probably vacillate compared to, you know, the regular average American between, you know, seven to ten. I can be incredibly healthy. Um in terms of making sure that I'm eating properly, I'm getting exercise, I'm getting vitamin D, I'm checking in with friends, I'm being, you know, I'm reducing stress, I'm trying to have a great work-life balance, I'm, you know, meditating, um, taking, taking my vitamins. But um, I am a workaholic, I, you know, it was ingrained in me being a you know, hard charging New Yorker for 20 years. Mm -hmm. And even now, even though I live in Sonoma in a world of laid back people and wine tasting, I've never worked more hours. I've never worked harder. So for me, I'm always having to balance that, you know, almost inborn ingrained. I love to just work, 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 until my fingers can't type anymore um, with, you know, having to balance this new knowledge I have. And I see it just as this is my daily struggle and will always be. Um, even my meditation practice, I'm, I'm always falling off the wagon. But the most important thing I tell all of my members of the Heel Hive is that you will always, there's no such thing as perfection. The one thing you can be perfect about is that you try every day and you just get back to it. Um, and it's amazing how you just take it step by step and you keep getting back you know, to your rhythm. And so I'm never, I think I'm probably a great teacher because I'm not perfect because, I, you know, because I'm not, you know, great at it. So I have to constantly work and I
0: will always for
2: the rest of my life
0: work on balance. And it's so true. I feel like if you're, if you have more of the attitude of like, all right, I do it when I can, you're more likely to keep doing it and keep it integrated in your life. And it might not be every single day. Like you said, you might go on and off the wagon. It's when you feel like, I have to do this. Cause then once you fall off the wagon, it's like really hard to get back on again. You know what I mean? Cause you feel like you failed like so intensely. And then it's like the idea, uh, you know what I mean? I feel like when you're a little Absolutely. looser with yourself is when you may not be perfect and it may not be every day, but it's probably more part of your life than it would be if you do it the other way. At least I find when I get super intense with things, I'm great. But then once I fall, I, it's really hard for me to bring it back. Well, it's
2: funny, we have, you know, a new course that we launched for those doing bee venom with the heel hive, you know, every semester, and there's always these this group of usually A-type women that are so on top of it, and you can tell they think, oh, I'm going to be the star student of the course, and it's pretty amazing that they get so into what we teach, and they try and perfect it so much that when they feel like they fail on it, they're the ones that we have to actually work the hardest to get going again because they have beat themselves up and they they've been trained to have this sense of shame and self-hatred because they're not perfect. And, you know, I constantly am teaching. There's no such thing as perfect wellness, perfect health, you know, perfection in any of these lifestyle changes. It's really the way you be perfect about it is that you don't beat yourself up and you just, you know, just be incredibly strategic. Like, If you need a checklist in the morning, make a checklist. If you need to have post-it notes, you know, just these small little, you know, tricks and ways of reminding yourself and teaching yourself daily to stay accountable for your self-care, I think is absolutely essential. I totally agree.
0: I think that's amazing. You said something earlier about a lot of the people that come in, you're saying part of what you're unraveling is the trauma that's done to the body. And to the, did you mean to the body, like the trauma through all these kind of autoimmune things? It takes a long time for that to heal, or did you mean emotional, or is that a combo of both?
2: Oh, combo of both. So I would I would basically break it up into three different sections. Legacy trauma, you know, trauma from both cultural trauma some people might have coming into the hive. Um, we are a very diverse membership, so we have people with a lot of, you know, trauma from exactly what's going on in the world right now, to people who come... Um, with trauma from having past e- eating disorders to self-harm to having been sexually abused or verbally abused or physically abused growing up. Um, these types of traumas can really come out when your body isn't working for you and all you have is your mind. You know, you spend a lot more time in your mind unable to distract yourself with exercise or endorphins or socialization. And so a lot of trauma can boil up. And then just m- literally being sick i mean i ask anyone who's listening to this today to think about when you've been at your sickest like a flu for three days unfortunately if anyone's listening to this with covid you would understand and then make that into a day that doesn't end for sometimes years in which you don't actually feel better you only feel worse every single day moving forward that is incredibly traumatic and then you have the trauma that happens when the medical system fails you when doctors fire you, I can't tell you how many members of ours are literally have been fired by 15 doctors, not because they aren't, are, you know, out of control maniacs. It's because the doctors don't know how to fix them. And so they rather fire them and leave them by the side of the road to move on to other patients because they're taught that type of triage in medical school. And so you, can you imagine being sick for years and then Investing 10, 20, 30, 50, $60,000 into a doctor and the doctor's modalities. And two years later, the doctor goes, as you're complaining, nothing's working. Well, I just don't think I'm the right fit for you. That is traumatic. That is a breakup that I don't, I don't care. There's no, there's no marriage breakup that is as traumatic as that, I think, because these people are, it's literally life or death. Um, So yes, I mean people come to us with massive trauma, and then there's the trauma of when we're telling them that not all of you guys are going to be successful, and if you're not going to be successful, because it's going to be up to you to be accountable to yourself, and that is a lot of trauma to have to finally face. Because again, we're not talking about losing a job or you know having an unsuccessful relationship. We're talking about life or death for them. We're talking about potentially losing their job next year because they still can't work or their career or their home, you know, having to remortgage but go bankrupt. These are life or death, you know, completely traumatic situations. And we're telling them, you know, if you don't actually change, you're not going to, you know, change your mindset, accept the trauma, work through it, do the hard work. Nothing's going to change for you. And that's traumatic. <laughs> so, <laughs> there's a whole lot of trauma. Um, and I think any, anyone who tries in a medical system to fix someone without addressing that trauma is not really doing their due diligence.
0: It's interesting. It's like what you hear about like successful weight loss. It's like, you know, you mm-hmm. doctors who tell you exactly the diet plan or um, all of that. But if you, don't, if you don't fix the trauma, then none of that sticks or ever really works. That's
2: exactly what I'm talking about with chronic illness. That's
0: so interesting. I don't think people always think about it that way because you just assume, well, I got bit by a tick. So if I can fix everything that came after that, this should go away. It has nothing to do with any of my mental. That's so interesting.
2: Oh, it it really does. If I might digress for a second, just to give people a better understanding of this, just the the horrible psychology involved. Um, There are people I know who were, less sick than me six years ago when I first was really struggling. I then discovered B venom. I got healthy. I now, you know, clearly, I mean, I put on Instagram every day, <laughs> run, hike, you know, drink, well, when I'm not doing IVF drink copious amounts of good Sonoma wine. Like I just, am, you know, at the, I'm the apex of health and wellness. You know, I don't have any issues. Um, I'm not sick with any pathogens anymore. I am that, you know, healthy person, as you would put into, you know, quotation marks. And you would think, and I I get asked this all the time by my members. So, so so-and-so, I've known that you've known them, or you guys were friends six years ago when you both were sick. Why haven't they tried bee venom yet? Hmm. And I say to people, if they've tried everything, and yet they're refusing to try bee venom, you have to understand that they don't yet want to face all of what, The possibility of healing could be, because if they actually get healed now, they're going to have to face all of the trauma of them making the wrong decisions in the past. And some people are not willing to face wrong decisions, and they're not willing to face regret. Uh. And that can keep people sick. And a lot of people don't want to listen to that and they get really mad at me when I talk about it, but I will talk about it to, you know, <laughs> to the end of my days, because I think that that applies to everyone in any toxic relationship mess, in any type of bad habit is that so much of the time you don't want to face the reality of the fact that you made bad decisions. So you're willing to stay in a bad decision because it's easier.
0: Is there anything, and I'm totally asking this just because I brought it up, but I don't know, is there anything also to, if you're in it long enough, as awful as it is, it does become part of your identity? And Ah, yes. So
2: I always caution people, anyone listening to this who's really struggling with chronic illness, is before you begin, be very careful about how you're going to approach it, talking about it in social media, to how you communicate it. Because those that begin to have an identity, a really large influential identity as a sick person, yeah. it becomes a Pavlovian response that being sick, they get attention. And I, again, this is not going to be a very popular, um, <laughs> with some people, a very popular point of view. But I always feel that, especially with the tools that we have at our disposal with chronic illness, especially with what you know, one can do for their own health, that not everyone, you know, there are certain illnesses that, you know, are are potentially fatal that you will never be able to get, you know, back to that 100% health. But you can still change your lifestyle. You can still try. You can still attempt. And when you become complacent and almost satisfied with being sick, that is the day you die. It's a slow death.
0: God, it's, it's fascinating. And I get it because, you know, looking on your story too, one of the things I think you said on the Unwell um, episode, which I really liked was, you know, you purposely, when you kind of got healthy, started becoming, identifying yourself more with like, was it the paleo diet? Like cooking like the desserts, was a paleo? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think it's funny. You try to do the opposite of like, I don't want to identify with this. Because I guess oh, so, no. you are the perfect teacher for all this because I feel like psychologically you understand the path that needs to happen that brings this all together, as well as the bee venom. So I love that you were like, Nope, I'm not identifying with this. So let me do this. And I just thought it was so funny that your husband said to you after everyone kept coming to you and asking for help with bee venom, it's like, you're not going to save any lives with paleo muffins. (laughs) Exactly. He was right. Um, Hilarious though, but totally right. But you were trying, um, People might not understand that now because they might say, "But look, you've made a whole career and you're well known for this, but that's not what you were going after."
2: Oh God, no! I did not pick this. I was so over the the illness world, the sick world, the Lyme world. You know, no offense to anyone with Lyme disease. That's "What? let's listening to this. I'm sure. But are. you know, it that all those traumas, all of that disappointment, all that frustration, just translates to a toxic soup. Um, in social media, of just you know, it's really hard when you are in pain and angry and bankrupt to be happy for someone doing well. Um, it is hard to feel like any any sense of wonderment and joy when you are in chronic pain, and so you have a bunch of people that are all miserable, and it's none of it is their fault, none of it at all, but that type of, you know, unhappiness can breed unhappiness, as we all know. So I was, I made a very, really strong decision about a year into my, you know, my chronic illness chronic line journey to stop basically um, being a part of these chronic illness communities and to only hang out with my healthy, happiest friends. Um, I was single. I was broke. I was alone. I lost my career. I can't tell you how difficult it was to hang out with happy in love couples that were talking about wedding planning or their baby on the way, but I did it and it was painful. It was painful, but I said to myself, happiness and joy and abundance attracts itself to, you know, it's a magnet mm-hmm. and, you know, pain, unhappiness, bitterness, jealousy, disappointment is another magnet. I wanted to be magnetized with a high-vibe, high-energy people because I felt that that was where I was going. That, that was, that was where, I, where I wanted to be. That, is where I, that was my goal. And lo and behold, um, by doing that and forcing myself to do that hard work and not put on blinders and not stay in a much more, um, I guess you could say, copacetic you know, cloud of other people and their despair, I was introduced by one of those happy couples to my husband and it changed my life. So I always say to people, you know, it's, it's important to you, to, to dip into groups and forums to educate yourself, but not for any type of complacency or soothing, unless there is true medical professionals and experts that are guiding you through it. Otherwise, again it just becomes a toxic soup
0: i i couldn't agree with you more and i think that's such a beautiful way to say it and so important i mean we teach that in meditation all the time like attracts like and you really mm-hmm. choose what frequency it is you want to live on and that's how you can start changing the frequency of your actions and the frequency of what you attract so i think that's huge and it's funny i know you and i were talking earlier kind of about you know the ivf journey and i remember when i was going through it forever And same thing, obviously people who are going through it, you know, talk to each other. It's it's nice to know that you're not alone. But I remember feeling very, a little different than everyone. And by the way, my story was gnarly. Like I was in it a long time. and, And I remember feeling like, same thing, everyone was so angry at anyone having babies. And obviously we were at a time when everyone was having babies. Nobody, like people stopped going to baby showers and stuff like that. And I never did. Like I was throwing baby showers still to like, Always. And it was the same thing. It didn't mean there were moments of like sadness for me. Um, and, and, and not to compare our stories, but I, I'm just comparing the sense of like that idea to choose who to be around, where I chose not to do the avoidance thing and chose to be in it for exactly the same reason. I was like, this is a beautiful thing happening to them. Like, I don't want to shun it. And I will say that I notice a lot in that camp who were shunning it are still really unhappy, if that makes yeah. sense.
2: So I made the same, I I'm in total agreement with you. I made the same decision. I, I chose, I, I first kind of went down the rabbit hole and then because of my own self-education with the chronic illness community, I was like, abort, abort. This is not, but that's probably not the best choice of words. Sorry. <laughs> I'm not to anyone, but, um, <laughs> but, um, basically, I was like, you know, get out of this because this is not where I need to be putting my energy. And instead, I focused on literally hugging until the pandemic happened, spending as much time with my friends with babies and hugging them and babysitting. And that's what I've done for, I mean, the pandemic kind of got in the way of that. But that is what I've done. And I've spoken to my friends who were successful with IVF. And it's kept me on the straight and narrow. And it hasn't been easy. Um, But it's interesting, even for me, I at first was incredibly transparent about every day of my process in IVF. And, it, you know, I had a lot of people following me um, just kind of so interested. And I thought, you know, so few women actually are transparent about the process and how difficult it is. And I wanted to apply the same type of transparency that I did with Lyme disease and social media and my journey with my IVF. And I had to stop that. And I don't know if anyone who has followed me here, if you all do, has noticed, but I've really pulled back and talking about my journey, not because I don't want to share and I'm planning to in the future, but because I was getting inundated by so many people and they hadn't yet come to that place of wanting to be you know, on the high vibe of whatever, you know, whatever journey they were at. And they wanted to commune with me on their trauma. And I realized very quickly that I could not be the holder, the vessel for hundreds of women who it's so sad, have massive IVF trauma While I needed to be in a place of abundance and a place of um, positivity. So I felt so bad that I wouldn't even respond. I mean, and it, I apologize, please message me after, <laughs> after my journey is over. I will be glad to talk with you then, but I had to do this self-care and the self-preservation, and I really recommend that to anyone. Never feel, especially women, feel so obligated to respond, feel so obligated to to give in, to share, especially if you are that person, and which I am. And I had to become selfish, radically selfish with my IVF process over the last few months, and I have,
0: and it's really served me. I think that's amazing and good for you, because I, I agree with that. I remember, You have to. And for me, it's, you know how we were talking about earlier and I was saying, hey, it was my thing. Like, part of me was like, this is my journey. This is what I have to deal with. This is the hardship I have to deal with. It doesn't mean it's easy. But I can't be angry at everyone who this is not their issue. And because that's fair to them because, you know, they have issues too. I don't know what it is. Some of them might be hidden. Some might be obvious. Some might not even had it yet in their lives. But like, no one escapes a life, you know, completely free of something And so I just always had to remind myself of that, of like, this is mine, but that just means it's mine. It doesn't have to reflect everybody else um, or what they're going through. So, and I remember one day when I knew we were adopting Levy and I was at, I think my friend's second baby shower, maybe that I was helping throw and it came out. And one of the girls who I used to talk to a lot because she was struggling also was angry at me. I could tell, I mean, it wasn't like, you know, she was angry, you know how you would get someone gets pregnant when you're in this thing that that, that's that type of thing but it was at me which i found fascinating because i was like wait i didn't get pregnant like i'm not even (laughs) but but it's like she was that wrapped up in the trauma that she couldn't even see past that part of like well now you're even angry when someone's choosing another way to take care of themselves kind of like what you were saying about the healing it's almost like wait someone might have found a different therapy to heal um you can't get mad if, if you guys are so mad that this therapy didn't work. Like if they chose something else and it's working, like you're now so trapped up in it, you're not even seeing the whole thing clearly. Does that make sense?
2: Oh, it absolutely does. And I think that, that you just hit the nail on the head is that you don't get better. You don't transform your life just because you've changed a path, right? It's about how you handle your own happiness and how you, how you accept and process your you know the unhappiness that comes to you which we all do by you adopting you were sending a message to your to everyone around you that your path was not going to be stopped by roadblock you were going to be successful it just wasn't going to be in the way that you know you what one always designed and that was a violation to your friend of her inability to do that and she was mad at herself not mad at you and that's what i always tell people because this happens with the, you know with our bee venom community, because at the heel hive, we teach differently, so i've had my own members attacked by other people doing bee venom who are not doing well, who then see that people in the heel hive are doing well and who attack the sick the sick attacking the sick who are getting better because it is it it upsets them to their core that they can't make the, those same decisions for themselves, and you know it really comes down to that We just need to, I don't think it's anyone's fault. I don't think you're weaker or less involved. I think you just haven't had the tools taught to you to how to change your point of view and how to get through these traumas. And I I truly believe meditation, exercise, you know, therapy, that all of those are absolute essentials. And it's weird because when people are sick and when people are going through traumas, many times, That's the last thing they wanted to do.
0: Right, (laughs) right. But by the way, I love, it's funny, I, I, this was so not planned but where the conversation started actually, because I think it's so important and it's a reminder to people that, it's like what we said, there's not that one miracle thing because it's a whole change and a lot of it is your outlook on your life and, um, just your outlook in general is, is part of, is a major part of this equation. Absolutely. And you so, need the tools. No one can do it alone. Right. And the fact that that's what you guys do, you give people the tools on how to shift that part is huge. Cause it sounds like, I mean, if you don't have it in you innately, which it sounds like you did, then how do you even find it? Like, how do you begin to grasp that idea? That's hard.
2: Oh, by the way, I didn't have it innately. I mean, not at all. I, I, I was, I mean, I think because I'm so bullish about this because I was the worst I lived in a constant states of denial. I put blinders on. I, you know, I didn't face my own issues. I was lucky though. One of my closest friends um, is a psychoanalyst now, but was in psychoanalytic training and she forced me to go to it saying, you have to deal with your shit. And so I did three years of deep Freudian on the couch at some certain points, five days a week, every single day facing my shit. And oh my gosh, that's absolutely transforming. me so i absolutely believe that if you have some deep traumas which i did from childhood that it can take a lot of time to figure them out and you've got to actually put in the hard work whatever wondering. they may be and then may i just say that gave me the self-awareness but i did not i was not challenged yet in life to actually apply that self-awareness in a way that i think truly transformed me until i got sick and i have to say You know, to this day, if you had asked me when I was at my most miserable, crying for literally 10 hours, you know, a day, you know, just begging the universe to put me out of my misery, so hoping I wouldn't wake up the next day, if you told that person that they would say today, the best thing that ever happened to me was nearly losing my life to chronic illness, she would be like, oh, fuck yourself, (laughs) but it is true, because I was then able to take that self-awareness, and I was forced from my chronic illness to apply it, to transform the way that I reacted to things, the way that I responded to stress and the way that I was self reliant in terms of Relying on myself and my own happiness and no one else and not expecting anyone else to fix it. That was when I applied it and I really learned those lifelong tools. So I do believe that These you know these traumas that happen to us any anyone listening who's going through a hard time. It's up to you to make that hard time become the best time of your life.
0: I think it's a beautiful, and I, you're right. Talk to me about when you, those 10 hours when you like were begging the universe to just not let you wake up in the morning. What was that for you? What did that mean? What were those 10 hours like?
2: Oh, it was awful. I was literally hopped up on massive amounts of oxycodone just to handle the pain. When I got, when I got bit by, I got bit by a tick first. Um, started having multiple you, melanoma, starting, what? You were aware that you were bit the first one? I was where i was bit i was told by the doctor the kick wasn't in long enough there's no bullseye you're fine three months later i started having night sweats started having insomnia for the first time started having massive panic attacks started having horrible migraines neck pain but i was traveling between new york and london literally every two weeks so my doctors were like you're just stress. it's just jet lag and so i ignored it and then i started coming down with multiple melanomas um, one after another that's and then i had an ovarian cyst that popped and so My life became something where I was like, I went from super healthy, being able to push my body every day, to really, you know, starting to be like, I'm going to green juice, Um, and I was able to control that quote illness because it really hadn't manifested to bring me down day to day. And then I got bit again. And the second bite, the morning I got bit, I was in New York. I had a huge conference. I drove my own self four hours through traffic out to. Shelter Island, Long Island, I then threw a dinner party, ended up dancing on tables that night. I never went back to work on Monday. I got bit that Friday night. I woke up with a bite. I knew exactly by then I was conscious of, you know, Lyme disease. I was much more aware of like, oh, I might have it. I was kind of suspicious to begin with. And so I immediately called the doctor, got out, you know, he said, yep, that's a bullseye. Let's get you on antibiotics, went on antibiotics. I had no idea I was already so sick. So what the antibiotics did is they just made me sicker because I had so much die off with the bacteria. I mean, even though I was literally on antibiotics within five hours of getting bitten or maybe five to eight hours, it didn't matter. I was already sick. So I did not ever go back to that office. I never clean, cleaned out my desk. My whole life changed. Um, I also got bit that time with a um, tick that had both, the um, babesiosis, which is like a malarial-type parasitical infection that can be fatal, along with Bartonella, which is another bacteria. Um, people just don't get bit by ticks with Lyme. They get bit nowadays with ticks with you know 15 different, you know, sometimes fatal infections like Powassan. So um, it's really important to be tick aware. And for anyone listening, I always have to say my PSA is: if you find a tick on you, do not destroy it. You got to take a sharp pair of tweezers, pull it out, put it in a plastic bag and send it to tickreport.com or tickcheck.com because if you do not, it doesn't matter if you get put on antibiotics for 30 days. You could have a myriad of different issues going on that are viral, that are parasitical, that can also bring you down. You must get that tick checked. So that's my PSA. Thank you for listening. Um, exactly. And yeah, so after that, I completely fell apart and I didn't get out of bed for literally a year and a half. Um, during that year and a half, I quickly, within about three months, descended to being unable to take care of myself, really, um, being able to, I lost my ability to read, I lost my ability to remember how to get home. I had walked to Whole Foods two blocks from my house, but I lived in the same neighborhood for 10 years. But one of my best girlfriends um, got a phone call from me. I was crying. It was winter. It was raining, pouring rain, and I said, I can't figure out how to get home. She's like... You're two blocks from your house. I was like, I don't know how to turn left or right. or like I'm paralyzed. Um, and she's like, look at the map. And I was like, oh, Google Maps on my phone. Great. I put in my address and I couldn't translate. It was like looking like, I, you know, at hieroglyphics. I knew it was a map. I could see, you know, the street names. I could read them. But for my brain to process left or right, I had no idea at the time that I had basically neurological Lyme, that the line had invaded my brain. I was slowly shutting down my capacity, my cognitive abilities. Um, after that, I didn't leave the house for months and the pain got worse. I was then diagnosed with lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, fibromyalgia, I was put on a plethora of pain relievers. None of them worked. Um, I would also have what happens with people with mind disease, um, chronic insomnia where I wouldn't sleep for three or four days. And so I would go crazy and I was single, I was alone and I had a very limited savings. So I just basically kept to myself And people were scared of me. They didn't. My friends didn't know know how to fix me, and they had never encountered anyone this sick from Lyme. And they also didn't want to face themselves that they could get bit and be as sick as me. So there was a lot of abandonment issues I went through socially. Um, And also, I was a very social person. I threw events. I did media. I, you know, I was just incredibly let's call it useful to people in New York. And all of a sudden, I wasn't useful anymore. So it was a really interesting time of transformation of finding that not only did I lose my career, but I lost my sense of self-identity because I wasn't that useful New Yorker that you can call and ask a favor. No one was calling me. There was no favors to be had. So um, it was a lot of, tra- you know, it was going through a massive emotional upset and, you know, breakup with my social identity, along with being in such immense pain that, you know, I, I would sometimes sit lay there for four hours dreaming of cutting off my leg. And, huh. and if I had had the energy to have a machete to cut off my leg, I would have, because the pain would be so excruciating. The Lyme disease can actually move. There, it's these spiral bacteria. And you could actually watch my body. And if I had friends come over, they would watch how my knee would basically blow up like an elephant. And then two hours later, my shoulder would. And they, we could actually watch the Lyme bacteria basically just cause Just, I mean, it literally looked like there was aliens inside of me. It was awful. Every day I, I was too fatigued to actually go through with my suicidal ideation, but there was not a single day or hour during those months and those years that I did not hope at least once in the day that I wouldn't wake up the next day.
0: Oh, and it's so interesting because I was going to ask you about your friends. I was going to be like, how many kind of ran away? (laughs) Because I can only imagine. So many. Yeah, because I can only imagine when something like that happens, you really do probably suss out who are your true friends. And did any, did some kind of rise to the top? You know,
2: it was a very interesting. I, I look back, and I would say that there were some dear friends that you could say failed me at that time. But it wasn't that they failed me i needed to not feel myself i needed to start to understand why they made those decisions to quote abandon me as a friend during that time i needed to see how that actually informed me better and how that helped me grow and i needed to be able to forgive so there's a few that i am still super good friends with that there was moments trust me at my thickest that i was like i'll never speak to them again um, (laughs) at all um that i've completely understood that they were not ready, they were not at their own place to handle my sickness, that whatever my sickness was triggered them deeply, psychologically. Um, And, you know, I think you only grow when you truly, when you truly forget, and when you truly realize that just because you're ready in your journey doesn't mean that they are. And so there was that, and then there was also a lot of just assholes, I have to say, that I'm so glad, (laughs) like, you know, I don't have to deal with anymore. And I really learned the beauty of um, editing a friend's list to what you're able to truly have intention for and be able to handle. So it was a good life lesson for sure, because before, you know, I was just a social butterfly, the more the merrier. And then I realized that I can still... Be social. I just don't have to invest myself emotionally in so many people, and it's basically impossible to. I was losing myself within that, so I really, I really learned so many lessons. As I said, you know, getting sick was the best
0: thing that ever happened to me. Sorry for the interruption, but just a reminder that we are bringing back Den Talks Live. Our first one since quarantine began um so it's not in a room because we can't get together it's not at the den but we are doing it virtually and we have sean corn for this and we're going to be talking about spirituality and conspiracy theories how they overlap this is october 24th so go get your tickets go to denanywhere.com and grab your spot. And like I said, like anytime we've done these, you still have an open conversation, a chance for Q&A. So any of your thoughts on conspiracy theories, um, QAnon, whatever your thoughts are, whatever you're thinking, how you're being influenced or not influenced, what your reactions are, bring it to the table. We want to discuss this is what it's about. It's just understanding where information comes from, how it gets changed and what the responsibility is of the wellness community. And why is the wellness community shifting so much and kind of having this kind of, fissure in the middle of it. So there's a lot of interesting stuff to talk about and I hope you guys are there and join us again, October 24th. So, I mean, I get that too. It's funny. Cause I feel like I went through kind of a similar thing where super, super social. And then you, you do, you learn, it's like the, just the time alone. It's funny that you were saying so much of your learning how to heal for Lyme is also self-care. It's like, that's a huge self-care because if you're, if you're invested in that many people, it's impossible to be invested in yourself. Oh, totally impossible. How, okay, so B therapy then. So I know the story you've told Mm -hmm. is you're like at your wit's end. It was your dad, right, who actually spoke to the nurse who was giving you a therapy. You You were doing a different therapy, right, for Lyme disease?
2: Yeah, so I tried everything. I mean, oral antibiotics, IV antibiotics, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, immunoglobulin support. I mean, stem cells, like that, everything you could at that moment, I tried and nothing worked. In fact, I just got sicker. Um, and I had actually, two years prior when I first got sick, had been introduced to bee venom therapy by um, a friend who had introduced me to a woman who started the practice, um, basically back in like the 60s, 70s in Santa Fe. She learned it from the Japanese um, when she was over in Japan in like the late 60s, 70s. And, um, you know, it was a lot more, it, I was brought into a room, she was very sweet, she was very much into the sacredness of bees, which I do appreciate, but there was a lot of like turkey feather waving, and I had come off a day of oral antibiotics, oral antiviral, I mean, sorry, IV antibiotics, IV antivirals, and um, my body was just wrecked, and then I was given a bee sting uh, without really being told about the science of it or anything, and I wouldn't anaphylaxis. Um, It wasn't full anaphylaxis, I didn't have to go to the hospital, but um, I had to like gulp Benadryl and calm my nervous system down and I was, I was turned off by it. I thought this was crazy. My body's too sick for this. I know went into anaphylactic shock. Um, No, thank you. And I totally forgot about it. Didn't even think about it, didn't even research it. And then I went back to Santa Fe about two years later and I was getting more IV therapy. And I had just had a pork put in because my veins had given up. So I needed this um, device attached to my heart where I could give myself full uh, IV therapy at home. Um, The only way I was functional was literally by being attached to a bag, you know, at least five five hours a day. And the bag would have nutrient supplements, you know, detox supplement, detox molecules that would help my liver and my kidneys function better. Um, and also antibacterials, antivirals, antiparasiticals, you, you name it. So um, I needed this device put in because my veins had given up. It had been two years of just constant IVs and they couldn't handle it. And my parents had come into town. Long story short, um, I was out of money. I had gone through my savings and spent over $150,000 my savings and sold everything I could. So I was probably about at that point $300,000, you know, in i guess you could say debt from where i had started because i hadn't worked i didn't have any money coming in and i was just selling my belongings um to get by i didn't have anything more to sell so when my parents came in it was my time to hit them up and my dad said well how much is this shit costing you every month and i was like well it depends Some months for two thousand months for ten thousand and my parents are you know i did not come from a wealthy environment and my parents were just gulping and they're like "We can't afford that right at that moment a nurse who was giving me my IVs, who had been talking to me prior saying that she had really, really bad Lyme disease, but she had healed herself, walked in. Uh, I got really excited. I said, Dad, I promise this work. She had really bad Lyme disease like me. She's a nurse at the IV clinic, and she's healed now. My dad was thankfully very cynical, and he walked up to her, and he's like, so I'm Brooke's dad. She t- t- tells me you're well, and you're as sick as she was, and the nurse was like, yeah, that's true. And he goes, well, how did you get better? From this clinic she stopped she kind of gulped and uh my dad was like you didn't get better from this shit <laughs> and she's like well it's really good and she started going really quickly into like i'm a single mother i have three kids the clinic pays for like our health insurance yeah, yeah. you know my dad just pressed her and she's like well you know to tell you the truth i healed using bee venom and my dad said great he's like seemed to work for you if you're if you tell me the truth that you were that sick and he goes, so how much does it cost? And she said, well, I mean, once you learn how to do it properly, I mean, if you find a beekeeper who's willing to give you the bees, it's free. My dad said, free? He looked at me, he's like, that's what you're doing, kid. <laughs> so, um, I mean, it's God. because I... Oh, my God. Right? <laughs> yeah, If anyone, I, a lot of my friends have met him. I mean, he is so funny, but yeah, he's the cheapest man in the world. And, you know, people ask me all the time, why aren't all the celebrities doing bee venom? I said, because they're not poor enough, because they are being sold all of these expensive modalities that are making a lot of doctors very wealthy, and that many times can keep them functional. Right. They don't, they're not at the rock bottom. They're not bankrupt by this. They don't need to sting, necessarily at this moment, sting themselves with these. Do I think they all will eventually within five years? Hell yeah. Because it always catches up to you. There is no eradication of Lyme disease from oral antibiotics, IV antibiotics, or any other type of hyperbaric oxygen chamber, ozone, nothing. There's just no eradication. They say remission. With bee venom, I cannot promise eradication for anyone else, but I can promise you, and my tests don't lie, and I publish them, and I'm transparent about them. I had massive chronic conditions, chronic Epstein-Barr virus, chronic Bartonella, chronic babesiosis, chronic Lyme disease. I have zero of them. I test myself literally every three months. Why? Because I'm constantly hiking. Even though I live in Sonoma, there's still ticks here. I'm constantly checking myself. It has never come back. And what are the things that make Lyme kind of rear its ugly head once you're in remission? Stress? Hormones? Well, I've done a year of, over a year, 16 months of IVF. I've been more stressed by this pandemic and holding space for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of chronically ill sick people. No, it's not back. It never will come back. Um, I, in fact, I feel protected by Lyme disease prophylactically because I know that I have a medicine cabinet in my backyard.
0: Uh, do you still, so bee venom, one of the things you were saying is it, the venom itself is antibacterial, antiviral, anti-inflammatory, antiparasitical. It's like everything you're saying you were given a ton of shit going through your port is in this tiny little stinger, basically. It's an entire, it's an entire medicine cabinet. It truly is. And, yeah. So, um, the, and the, and the research doesn't lie. So, a couple questions, because then just on the thing is, how do the bees? Because the bees don't die, correct? Oh, they do. Yes, they do.
2: So we we make bee sacrifices each time we sting. But for those of you that I know are going to come down on me about bee murder, um, <laughs> you, I can guarantee you that none of you are beekeepers. Why? because not a single beekeeper ever has that um, reaction. Why? Because bees don't, they're not really individuals. They're very much like ants. They work as a hive. Um, The queen is used to losing up to a thousand bees a day that go out to forage. She knows and has intrinsic knowledge of which bees she's lost. And guess what? She makes the exact same amount of bees the next day. So it's actually bee venom therapy is a sustainable practice. What is the biggest issues with bees? I kill less bees than anyone, and I've over time killed less bees than anyone who's listening to this that doesn't have my lifestyle. Why? Glyphosate. Every single time you buy McDonald's, every single time you buy, you know, almond milk that isn't 100% organic, every single time that you put food in your mouth that's not 100% organic, you're killing way more bees than I ever will or anyone ever will with bee venom therapy. You're making a choice to support you know, the agriculture industry that uses glyphosate that leads to bee colony collapse. That is one of the biggest issues. And I will guarantee you that you're probably killing 20 bees a day by your lifestyle choices, unless you're 100% organic.
0: And clearly, you, you work with like beekeepers, right? So you're working with like the keepers of the bees, literally those who love this community more than anything, I'm guessing.
2: Anything. Exactly. And beekeepers are all for this. They know they're like, I sting myself. I love my stings. They keep me healthy. I never get sick. Um, another thing to realize is that beekeeping is a really expensive hobby slash it really is expensive for small beekeepers. Um, it, you, because these are so sensitive to glyphosate. and those glyphosates are so, you know, so common, is that to actually have true healthy hives, you need to have hives that have you know, a mile or two of land around them that's organic. It's really hard to come by. So between, you know, purchasing organic healthy land for bees to live on to, you know, making sure that there's enough pollinating plants and flowers around to just the upkeep of the hives, you know, bees get mites and they have, you know, killer bee attacks, like Africanized bee attacks. It is constant stock-breaking labor. It is not easy. So by bee venom therapy, you're actually supporting beekeepers to allow them to actually purchase more land, to make more hives. It's a very sustainable practice.
0: And to talk about, so you're actually taking a bee and you're, you're stinging yourself with the bee. So it's like, yes. how do you know, like, and I'm sure it's different for everyone, but how do you know what dose you need? Like how many stings? Well, we start people off really slow. Um, at the Hero Hive, we
2: um, have a relationship with a Lyme doctor, and we do really comprehensive testing to ensure that absolute safety before you even start stinging. You know, you don't want to be living in high mold. You don't want to have autoimmune conditions that haven't been exposed. You want to make sure that, you know, your thyroid and your adrenal system is top-notch or, you know, issues are addressed. So first of all, everyone listening, you don't just grab a bee, especially if you have any type of health issue, you need to absolutely comprehensively test and know what's going on in your body and really, you know, have a a really clear picture before you start singing. Then when you start singing, you want to make sure that you really, really start low and slow and you don't overdo it because it also releases histamines and, you know, especially with women, our estrogen also creates a lot of histamine intolerance and potential mast cell issues, Um, so we really need to be careful when we start stinging to go low and slow and to you know work our tolerance up. Um, and then over time you work up to a certain amount of stings. It's not that many and it's about three days a week and you have like every other day off and the weekends off. And honestly between, if I look back at my suitcase full of IVs and supplements and medicines and prescriptions and then how I used to travel when I was doing bee venom therapy, which was a little box of bees, it was night and day. night and day so um, nothing easier
0: and so when do you like I could see if someone was going in for something specific like arthritis in the hand like they did kind of on the show um, what when you're doing something like Lyme disease that's viral is there a certain area you sting that's more effective not I mean just to be specific
2: Lyme disease is bacterial not viral but a lot of tick borne illnesses are viral No, no. Um, Well, I'm going to say, what is the root cause of that rheumatoid arthritis? The reason we do not, um, I do not prescribe to the spot treatment for for B venom therapy is the fact that you're not getting to the root cause. Right. So most of my members never have to spot treatment because they're actually getting to the root cause
0: by the way we do it. So what does that mean when you say the root cause? So where would you sting? Like, how does it work? Well, we use the back and we sting for a much longer time than if you were to, you know, go to
2: an apotherapist and have them for a month, you know, sting a, you know, an achy joint. Um, We sting large, longer for a longer time, larger amounts, and we test, not guess. So we are consistently testing our members every three months to make sure that, you know, we're getting at whatever is the root cause. A lot of people, they just, they'll go to some they'll, they'll go to a holistic modality without really doing the due diligence before and so again they'll slap the band-aid on even with B venom and then not really get to you know the depth of what is causing this inflammation that is causing their symptoms
0: and when you um like do you now now that you're symptom free and lyme free and like you said no pathogens do you do you do it prophylactically or how does that work
2: Um, I'll do it prophylactically. If I, let's say like I'm going camping for three days, then I know how to do it safely prophylactically for myself. I'll do it prophylactically. If I, let's say my husband, before the pandemic, he was always traveling and like catching things on planes. If he came home and was like, babe, I think I have a cold. I would sing him and me. So neither of us got sick. Um, I use it really as a medicine cabinet, but again, that's only after years of training and knowing exactly how to do it safely and effectively. Um, but yes, yeah, you can use it as a medicine cabinet, but do I use it every day prophylactically? No, um, I don't need to, but I do always uh, make sure to consistently check for Lyme disease because I spend, you know, one of my, biggest pleasures is going hiking nearly every day and meditating at least five to ten minutes by this my favorite creek creek in this middle of this little redwood valley um that I have all to myself and yeah there's ticks all around there. There's zero all around there. So I do tick checks but um I also just check my blood serum to make sure that I wasn't re exposed. So, you know, um I have a, I have a beehive in my backyard. I'll I know for sure I'll always be a beekeeper and for me it just gives me a sense of a sense of calmness to know that I have this medicine cabinet in my backyard. And you know, what's really interesting is the Chinese just um, released a uh, research study into bee venom therapy and COVID because they were looking at their numbers and they were doing all this tracing of these families in Wuhan province. And they realized that four, I think it was over 400, nearly 500 beekeepers. I mean, that sounds like a lot of beekeepers, but Wuhan is pretty damn large, right? 500, 400 to 500, I forget the exact amount, beekeepers in Wuhan. Their families, close family members that they lived with got sick with COVID. None of the the beekeepers did. That is when um, they started launching studies into bee venom therapy against COVID. And again, those are not, you know, human studies. These are just, um, this is just research coming out of China, but it's damn fascinating. I'll tell you that. We do know that bee venom can eradicate HIV. Wow. We do know that bee venom can eradicate herpes. Now, when I say eradicate, I mean in a test tube, not in human studies. Why do, not, why do we not have human studies for bee venom? Um, we are actually. Um, we are starting to around the world. The problem in America is that clinical studies for FDA approval cost Millions upon millions. To have one just for Lyme disease, not for the other co-infections, not for rheumatoid arthritis, but just for Lyme disease in America would cost the minimum $56 million. Oh my God. Great. So, so, so let's, let's pay for it. Who's going to pay for it? It's going to be big farm and they don't want to pay for something that they cannot patent and you cannot patent the bee. Right. So that is why we don't have these, you know, massive human studies. But at the heel Hive, because we have a prescriptive process because we have standardized testing we are actually now creating data in true human studies we are a research facility as well showing mm-hmm. that everyone under our program is actually healing from the bee venom so even though we can't necessarily pay for a 56 million dollar fda clearance study we can still do clinical research And we partnered with companies like aura ring which is a biometric tracker to also help us be able to track and get that data points for each of our members to show them and get them motivated and to keep accountable and to also show the world that this really works and this will keep, you know, there's so much hope in bee venom, let me put it that way. I
0: have two questions, and they're totally separate from this. Um, from, well, one, you said you, were, you have a beehive and you're a beekeeper. Did, does that take like a lot of expertise to become a beekeeper? Do you have someone helping you or? Um, yes, so
2: myself and my vice president at the Heal Hive, we both are beekeeping um, newbies, I guess you could call us, and um, we take courses either online or with beekeepers, and, you know, it's, it's definitely not easy, and it's really something that, you know, I, I believe every beekeeper would say it's always a learning process, but overall, if you can garden, can you beekeep? Absolutely. That's amazing.
0: That's amazing. That's really amazing. And then how do you feel? Because you were saying back then, it's like, you know, they asked, well, why don't all the famous people do it? Clearly, there's been a whole, you know, in, you know, the UK and, you know, all the, and now there's like the bee, there's the bee facials. How do you feel about that stuff? And how do you feel about using the bees for that reason?
2: Um,
0: well, you know, I think that
2: We do have research showing that bee venom can be supportive even for vanity purposes and for collagen regeneration. Um, And, you know, the way that they derive bee venom for that is very different than what we have to use it for, for um, For medical purposes. So just to clarify, um, dried bee venom does have properties that can be supportive for, you know, vanity purposes for some kind of more spot reduction um, pain relief. However, a lot of the beneficial aspects, medicinal aspects within bee venom are a lot of um, really, really sensitive peptides and enzymes that are not very structurally stable. So when they get, when they derive this bee venom, this dried bee venom, it's derived by bees that basically walk when they come back into the hive across an electrified plate, it doesn't hurt them. It just makes them like kind of drop a few drops of, their, of the venom. Um, and they keep the venom sac, so they stay alive and they don't really notice. Um, but that venom is only gathered over time over like seventy six hours and dried. So what happens is that a lot of the beneficial medicinal aspects get lost from that drying process. These peptides are very um, temperature unstable. so you just lose you lose the medicinal benefits that, are the antibacterial, antiviral, for the most part. You, you retain a few, but not enough to actually transform your health from, like, chronic illness, you know, to, right. to healthy or to, you know, to get at cancer cells, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, you know, in terms of using it for vanity purposes, yes, it has proven efficacy. Um, in terms of using it for medici- medicinal purposes, no. Um, and, again, I go back to, you know, my feeling about the fact that the more we use bee products, that I means the more re- reliant we are on bees. And bees are canaries in a coal mine for our health of our planet and our environment. Mm-hmm. So they're not going to thrive as the more unhealthy our planet becomes. So the more people are reliant on bee products, the more people use bee products. Especially, obviously, everyone listening, please organic and healthy. Um, the more we, we support beekeeping and the more we keep our planet healthier. So I really see it as, a, you know, by supporting organic beekeepers, by supporting beekeeping, by buying, purchasing beeswax, by purchasing, you know, healthy organic, you know, skincare that uses bee venom, all of it is just supporting our
0: precious bees. Just make sure it's organic so you know that the money is going to an actually beneficial place.
2: Well, not just that, is that some some bees, beehives are done in a commercial manner in which they will create these large commercial beehives, ship them out to these glyphosate-laden places. And the bees don't collapse immediately. It's not like they bring the glyphosate back and they collapse that, that hour. They collapse over like three to four weeks. So these practices of this commercial farming and having bees around glyphosate is just really, it's sickening. It's kind of like our commercial... Um, you know, meat industry. It is really, you know, creating something to then sacrifice it, you know, in a really non, um, you know, non-sustainable way um, for our own quick benefit. And it just, it's not the way to go. So organic farmers, beekeepers do not do that.
0: Amazing. This is such an incredible conversation. I'm so appreciative. It's so informative and so fascinating. It's funny when I was like looking up bees, I know that in like Ancient Greek mythology—they looked at them as the givers of life, so it's—they definitely are. They, yeah, and they clearly are, and they clearly were for you and for so many people. And it's, it's really beautiful. And I mean, how amazing that—I mean, your calling found you clearly, and you're doing such an incredible job, really helping people everywhere.
2: Well, thank you. I appreciate that, and um, I appreciate anyone who gives me a time to
0: you know, whack lyrical
2: about bees and bee venom because clearly I will.
0: <laughs> I mean, you're such an amazing person to talk to about it and your story is really relatable. I just know so many people that are exactly whether it's from Lyme or something else, but it's like that those autoimmune disorders are awful because a lot of times there's no answers and you're stuck in this weird limbo of this world of just pain, misery with no help in sight. And that's just a horribly depressing place to be. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah. So um, I have four quick questions, and then we'll do your personal practice. But um, so what is the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning?
2: Oh, I wish I could say it was meditation, um, but it's definitely uh, putting the coffee pot on.
0: <laughs> Answer. If there's, I know you are a big um, reader. Is there one book that has transformed your life? Wow that? That is a
2: crazy question. It's a really hard question. I would say, weirdly, it's not really a science book um, at all. I would say it's One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. Um, If anyone has read that book, you'll know that it's a look at someone who, it's basically a a minutia of the daytime of someone um, surviving through the gulag of being thrown into, you know, a Soviet prison. And for me, I read that when I was about 11 years old, coming from, you know, a rarefied, even though my parents were poor, I was still a white girl in Phoenix in the 80s. And it was the first time I understood misery and sacrifice and perseverance and survival. And I read that book, understanding that life was not just going to be, you know, Hello Kitty and pool parties, and that there was a bigger you know, wider human condition out there and that I was going to have to be prepared for all that life had ahead of me. And um, I think it's a really wonderful book to read for anyone. It's dark as all hell, (laughs) but um, it really shows you the human ability to persevere and stay strong despite all obstacles. And so that book has never left me. I love
0: that. Is there something you can't, well, I, we know your answer, but maybe there's a different one. Is there something you can't live without? Well,
2: I'm going to say coffee.
1: <laughs> I, really, I really, and I don't actually
2: drink that much. I only allow myself one cup a day. It was one of those things when I had really bad Lyme, I had mounting food allergies, coffee would make me feel sick. Um, everyone was like, don't you miss a cocktail? No, I miss. I couldn't drink coffee for like two years. I missed coffee. Now I'm about to start and you know, put a baby in, I'm doing my own IVF embryo transplant, and I am now facing nine months of no coffee, and so I guess it's just on my mind coffee, but it is that one thing for me that it feels always, it's like my one vice, that it's been the, for two years that I couldn't drink coffee, it was the one thing I thought about every day, I just wish I had coffee, it's a, it's a physical, emotional addiction, and it's just, I just, I don't need a lot, I just need, like, five sips and I'm like ready to go. And yeah, so
0: I would, <laughs> I would say coffee. <laughs> Is there like, what's your go-to? My go-to? Yeah. Like what's, if it's like, you love it, Like what's your one cup of coffee? What's the brand or the type or. Um,
2: I only like organic, obviously mold free coffee. And there's a few kinds, but when I lived in Venice beach, my favorite was to go to, um, Aeron and they sell a brand called victoria from um australia and they have this wonderful coffee it's so yummy um not really acidic and just super yummy and i like my coffee with some plant-based milk and that's it just a small little cup and that's all i want but i'm gonna have to get through my addiction <laughs> some way or another forward the next year
0: if you um could live anywhere where would you live uh, that's a great question. I,
1: um,
2: I was lucky enough about 10 years ago to spend three weeks in the Adamant Island. And it's this, this island part of India in the middle of the Indian Ocean. And there's smoking volcanoes and elephants that swim. And there's so many islands that are just uninhabited or only maybe one family or two families live there. And the diving in the coral reefs there are some of the best in the world. And I love diving. It is, you know, my favorite thing to do in the world. So I would say happily, happily spend the rest of my life with a mound of books, a Wi-Fi connection, and scuba gear, just swimming, diving, and, like, you know, Sounds like walking rocking around volcanoes every day and, like, picking fresh mangoes and bananas. That is my, you know, crystal clear water Ma- you know, massive manta rays and volcanoes. And I'm happy, you know, and swimming, swimming elephants.
0: <laughs> what else do I need? <laughs> hey, I want a swimming elephant. That sounds incredible. Um, really? This has been incredible. Um, everyone stay tuned. She's going to do her personal practice. Thank you for this. I, I know that this is, this episode is really going to affect a lot of people in a positive way. So I appreciate that.
2: Oh, it's been so fun. And I really, love everything you guys are doing and it's so important and i i wish meditation was taught to every child and to everyone right now because we could all use it so everyone listening here just know that once we learn these amazing lifestyle changes that even if we don't do them every day we do them as much as we can and we talk about them as much as we can you know it just it really does translate that high vibe everywhere so you know use your voice practice every day that's what i say Amazing. Lots of love to the community. And if you guys are curious about the Heel Hive, you can always go to the Heal Hive on Instagram. That is
0: H-E-A-L-H-I-V-E. And check us out. And now Brooke is going to lead us in her personal practice. And of course, most appropriately, it is called the B breath. It is a very simple breath every single person can do. Um, I love how she does this. So take a listen, learn and join.
2: So the easiest way to do bee breath is that you just plug up your ears with your thumbs. so you take you know the padding of your thumbs and and basically close your ears and then you close your mouth and then you basically hum like you were a making the sound of a beat. I love that. and that and you breathe through your nose and it's both will calm you down if you need to be calmed down and it will energize you so I love it when, let's say I'm tired, I've had a long day and I have to jump on a client call at like 6 p.m., I'll just do, you know, 30 seconds of b breath, a minute of b breath, and I'll just feel energized. And then when I'm having that panic attack, you know, traffic,
0: et cetera, et cetera, I'll do b breath just to like reset myself. Amazing. Can you do one here so everyone can see how to do it? I'll do my best
2: on, you know, wearing AirPods and being on a podcast. But basically you plug your... Plug, you know, the inside of your ears, so you base as if you were, you know, plugging your ears, and then you hum like this. Take a big first breath through your nose, and then mm-hmm. another breath through the nose. Mm-hmm. So basically, it sounds like a beehive.
0: Did that come through? Yeah, I love that. And I feel like the vibrations alone are probably amazingly healing for you.
2: Exactly. Very good for your vagal nerve. Um, and kids love to do it. So if any parents are, can't get their kids to take that breath or calm down, teach them deep breath. And they seem to really like it.
0: Incredible. Okay, amazing. This was so awesome. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You're so welcome. And thanks for having me on the show. Dentalk's podcast would not exist without these incredible people, Nicole Rappi, Reem Edon, Hayden Fungheiser, Kim Bielek, and music by Alex Fetter. Thanks for joining us. If you haven't subscribed, please do. And also, wherever you listen, please go and leave us a review. It's so greatly appreciated. It really does help us out. If you want to keep talking about all this stuff, please join our community on our secret Facebook page. Go to Facebook, search Dentalk's podcast, and join us there.
1: At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place.